0: So let's turn now and learn more about our king to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And this morning we'll be examining together verses 29 through 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, that is Jesus. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to the Gospel of Matthew, we've been reading larger portions on Sunday mornings, and we come this morning to a brief one. And though brief, we pray that our meditation might be sweet this morning and that your Holy Spirit might be pleased to show us once again our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, the verse right before the passage I read a moment ago, Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man, it's a messianic title referring to himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the servant. He came to serve not only his disciples, helping them every day. That probably was shocking to them. They, they were used to kings and rulers who would be served by others. Jesus was constantly helping his disciples, serving them, and ultimately he'll even wash their feet. They've witnessed him serving, thoughtless to his own comfort, countless people, men and women of all kinds. But Jesus' is servant, not only in that way, he is, he is the servant in a messianic way. Back in Isaiah 42, and I invite you to turn in your Bible for a moment to this passage for it is, it is in the background of the passage here we're studying in Matthew, it is, it is key. And the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, of the prophet Isaiah, is quoted in the gospel of Matthew significantly. We've seen this already, but I want to remind you of this beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. There God is speaking to his people, Judah and Israel. By this time they are they are beleaguered, they are going to be exiled, they are going to be overthrown by the Babylonians. There doesn't look like much hope is on the scene. A lot of suffering, a lot of death. And to this scene where many of innocent, sincere men and women of God are Discouraged, God sends these words Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom is my delight. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and its offspring who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it I am the Lord I have called you in righteousness I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes and to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. God is telling others to be aware that this this man is his Messiah, his appointed king, the servant. It's a messianic title. It is the title that Jesus cherished. When he says that he came not to be served, but to serve, the Lord Jesus has in his heart and mind the mission appointed to him by his heavenly father, that he is the servant. And as part of his mission, such would be his character that he would come to save his people from their sins and set his people free from their misery and from and from maladies even including blindness the disciples as we come back to matthew chapter 20 the disciples by this time they believe that jesus of nazareth is the messiah that's clear in their minds they have no question they believe he is the promised king the promised servant, but they have an idea of how he could be of most service to them and to the nation. And their idea of how Jesus could be of most service is not God's idea or Jesus's idea. They have a wonderful plan for Jesus's life And it doesn't really have anything dealing with saving them from their sins because they have an overestimation of their self-righteousness. They still think that they can be saved by works. They think that Jesus just needs to get rid of the thugs, the evil rulers, the hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees, and especially the Roman Empire, and everything will be good. That's how they think Jesus can serve them best And because that's their mission, their understanding of how Jesus can best serve, they, from their perspective, have little tolerance for little children or for elderly or for the invalids who can offer little to help Jesus and them in this cause that in their minds is the priority. They definitely don't think Jesus should be wasting his time, bothering, being bothered by blessing little children that are brought to him or by helping those who cannot contribute to their cause and how could a blind man or woman possibly contribute to the cause, their cause? A blind man can't fight very well, he can't even walk, he has to, can't even really take care of himself. And if you think of it, blindness is one of the most humbling conditions. I was just around a, a man who was blind just the other day. And I was just struck sitting with this man that how dependent he was on his family member. He, He's dependent on to be brought where to sit, where to go. Has to be brought food, can't can't drive, all of these things. Can't see when danger is coming. A blind person is absolutely, completely dependent on those around them. And in that ancient culture, ancient to us anyways, Blindness was common. Blindness often is caused at birth by disease, infections. At time of birth, even today, when a baby is born, one of the procedures that's uh, done to help a little baby and, and all that's you know when they take the baby and they, they, is, is cleaning out the eyes and making sure that maybe some antiseptic or so that there's no there's no infection that sets in. Blindness in that culture was very common caused by injury caused by working caused by war and there is no ophthalmology as we know it today there is no ability to go to the eye doctor To have a tear healed. There is no way to reduce the swelling in the eye. There is no way to assist to clear out the disease. So there are more than a few blind people, and often they are brought to the position of being beggars because they are wholly dependent, as I said, upon those around them. Maybe their family members are deceased. Maybe they have no one to care for them. Maybe they have no one that wants to care for them. And so they are absolutely dependent on the mercy of those. They don't know what they look like. And so they often are disheveled. They have no idea what their hair looks like, what their face looks like. They have no idea when they're dirty. They have no idea what their clothes look like. They have no idea to to fix their clothes. They they look, can look dirty, disheveled. They may smell terribly, because they have no ability to bring themselves to a place to bathe. They're perhaps covered with wounds or other diseases, because they aren't unable to care for them, or to reach out to the resources that would care for such a wound. The average normal person who can see, could see it, could see what needs to be done, could clean it out the wound, would be able to get the salve or whatever is needed. So among the various maladies and illnesses that beset people in this culture then and still today, blindness was one of the most debilitating, the most humbling A deaf person can at least see where they're going. They can see. I don't mean to minimize the significance of being deaf, but a a person who can see can at least see where they're going. They can work. They can provide food for themselves. They can do all of those things. Not a blind person. And so the text tells us that, that Jesus and his disciples, along with a large crowd following him, were near Jericho. Jericho apparently had some some waters that were thought to be, you know, helpful for healing various diseases, including blindness. And so it may have been that there was a particularly significant crowd of blind people in that area. It's interesting that among, I mean, it just can't be that there was only two blind beggars in Jericho. It's interesting that there's only two that are recorded as crying out to Jesus in this way. But, As Jesus was leaving Jericho in that area, a large crowd is following him. They're amazed by him. The disciples believe that he's the Messiah. The crowd is largely mixed. Um, Later, as they go into Jerusalem in chapter 21, verse 11, when the crowds are asked who this is, they'll say this is the prophet Jesus there aren't too many who are really willing to commit that this is the promised Messiah. So they're following him because of his miracles, because he feeds people, because hes they want to see the show. They they are caught up in the emotion, the excitement of of following Christ. And it is a large crowd. And so there's a din, there's a noise, there's a large, there's a sound. It's not quiet like it is in this room. It's it's loud, it's a crowd, there's people talking and, and there's a murmur and it's a large crowd. And so when Jesus is going by, these two blind men are just sitting by the road. That's that's they've been put there, they don't know where else to go, they sit there to beg, and they hear, they can hear, they, they catch wind that it's this Jesus of Nazareth who's passing by. They've heard of Jesus by now. Jesus has been ministering for several years now, nearly three years. They've heard of his healings. They've heard of what he can do. And hearing, verse 30, that Jesus was passing by, they cried out. If you're taking an outline, I I really went past my outline quickly. I want to first consider their condition, and we've examined that already. That they are blind, which means they are dependent. Completely dependent on the mercy of those around them. Secondly, let's consider the nature of their cry. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. The crowd, verse 31, told sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more. These men could care less what anybody tells them to do. They're abused probably all the time, so they, they know that this man going by can help them and they will not be stopped out. They lift up their voices so loud that the din of the crowd and the abuse of those telling them to be quiet probably some form of shut up. They lift their voices so that it's higher. They are going to be heard by Jesus with all their might. They don't care. They're going to humble themselves and they are going to cry out to Jesus because they are desperate. It is a loud cry and it is a cry of desperation. They are desperate and they are determined. They cry out all the more. Thirdly, consider their confession. Not only their condition, their cry, but their confession. They cry out, Lord, not once at least twice and then 30 verse 33 again they address him as lord not rabbi not prophet lord these men have never met jesus but they have heard of him they have heard the good news they confess jesus of nazareth to be the lord the messiah the son of god and if there was any doubt as to whether they believed he was the messiah verse 31 lord son of david now by crying out that out they're not just helping others know Jesus's ancestry lots of people are interested in their ancestry these days and and that's not what's going on here it is true that Jesus is a descendant of David but son of David is a kingly messianic title they are claiming that this Jesus of Nazareth is the one who has the right to the throne of the 12 tribes of Israel that this one is the promised king after hundreds of years of no one sitting on the throne, that Jesus is the promised coming king, the descendant of David, the one to whom God's covenant with David, that there would always be one to sit on his throne, would be fulfilled. Lord, son of David. This is their confession. It's not not incidental. They are loud, they are desperate, they are determined, and their confession is absolutely accurate in the midst of a crowd that is dithering, is undecided about just who Jesus is. They know their need and they know who this man is. Fourthly, their request. I know that messes up the C's. Their condition, their cry, their confession, their request. It's very simple. Jesus asked them, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 32. And they say, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Have mercy on us. Back to verse 31. The request is first before it is the request to see at its most basic level. Have mercy on us. Think about it. In verse 31, in their cry, they entrust their case to the heart of the one they have not seen, but have heard of and believe in. Have mercy on us. That, that's their cry initially. Have mercy on us. They believe, in other words, in the character of Jesus to such a degree that they are inclined to believe that if only Jesus hears their voice. He will, just as God has revealed himself, who is abounding in mercy, that the Son of God, like God, will have mercy on them, have mercy on us. We want to see they believe in the character of the one they have not seen. Well, who is the, who is he? We've already mentioned him numerous times. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the servant, the Messiah, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, stopping for two blind beggars. We've considered who the blind men are. Consider for a moment who Jesus is. The one who responds to them. There is one dominant characteristic of who he is recorded in this text. He is the compassionate Savior, the compassionate King. He stops, surrounded by a large crowd he does have places to go. He's on a mission. He has just told his disciples in chapter 20, verse 18, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of God will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. He has a few things on his mind. few things that might consume his heart, Jesus. A few things that are ahead, that he knows are ahead, that, that are kind of on the horizon, that are overshadowing everything. His heart is full of what is about to take place. He's about to enter into his sufferings and death. It's about to take place. The whole reason why he's come. He's a little bit busy. A little bit burdened in his heart and yet going along he hears over the din of the crowd the loud desperate cries of two men somebody tells them oh they're just two blind beggars on the side of the road and one of the other gospels says that Jesus commands them to be brought to him Mark reveals to us that one of the man's names names of the man of the men was Bartimaeus They're brought to Jesus, and Jesus stops. The whole crowd stops. He stops the whole thing. He stops for two blind, disheveled, likely, unseemly, desperate, blind beggars. He stops on the way to Jerusalem for them. He looks at them in the eyes they cannot look back at his eyes and as he looks at these men who have no ability to see their Lord and Savior standing before them he asks them what do you want me to do for you and they said to him Lord we want our eyes to be opened Verse 34, moved with compassion. Who is this Jesus? Our compassionate king. Moved with compassion. I, I don't know, but knowing that he's going to Jerusalem that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be abandoned by all his disciples, that he's going to be beaten, scourged, mocked, charged falsely, crucified. I know when I'm going through times of suffering and ache, my ability to take in the needs of others really shrinks down. I'm just so consumed with my own concerns. Not so with Jesus. Even as he goes to Jerusalem to suffer, bleed, and die, he has time to stop for two blind beggars. And not only stop just because you know he's the messiah and the king and he's supposed to you know the prophecy says to open blind eyes no 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 he stops he looks at these men and his heart is moved with compassion this is our savior this is our lord it's a little scene But it's beautiful, and it's very timely this morning. I've referenced several times in the beginning of the service my pastoral prayer, and I am being a little bit vague about the events because I'm not sure that all of all ages should need to know details about these things. And I'll just say as a complete aside, parents of younger children, we need to show discernment. This is an evil, wretched world, and we have every right to shelter little ones for a little while. But this week, with some of the news that we receive, and we again, as I alluded to in my prayer, we just can't comprehend. What's Jesus thinking? Well, probably lots of things, but one thing we can be sure of, really, that no one's heart is moved with compassion as much as his. No one's. And think about it. Take it in. He's not only taking in that one news story. Because you understand how random our—I mean, sometimes events are so big that it hits, but you understand that our society is so wretched and so evil, just our nation alone, never mind the other nations of the world— Even in this community, there is so much abuse and wickedness going on all the time that we are not aware of. And frankly, we have no ability, and God has not called us to handle it, to take it in. But Jesus takes it all in. He carries it all on his heart. And his heart is stoked with rage against those who... Harm the innocent. Remember, he's the one who said, woe to the world. Causes one of these little ones to stumble. It would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the trenches off of the Gulf of Maine, into the deepest part of the Atlantic, than to touch one of these little ones. And by the way, going to the depths of the deepest part of the ocean, will not allow anybody to escape the wrath of God. He is the avenger of the innocent, but he's moved with compassion. He's moved with compassion. He's not indifferent. He's not just sitting on his throne, just waiting for time to pass by. He is the compassionate king. And so there's four basic truths that I... Want to highlight. I've already referenced them in this little brief passage. Four basic truths that I want to highlight and then two main applications. First of all, Jesus is the promised servant, the Messiah. This is what the text is telling us. It's saying, see, the one has come who God prophesied would be sent to open blind eyes. It's not just in Isaiah 42. It's also in Isaiah 35. I'm going to close with that text. But the Messiah was promised to be one who would be like this. He would be a not just a conquering king. He is that, but he's a compassionate king. And down to the level of opening the eyes of the blind. He is the promised servant, the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies. Secondly, basic truth. This text highlights that we are by nature spiritually blind. The the irony of these two blind men who can see who Jesus is, surrounded by a crowd, who cannot see who Jesus is. That is us. That is us in our spiritual darkness. We are all by nature spiritually blind. We cannot see. Thirdly, biblical faith starts with a cry of desperation a cry of desperation. Until we understand our need for a Savior, we cannot be saved. Now, I'm not suggesting that that when you are saved that you understand the fullness of how much your need is. The reality, as you mature as a follower of Christ and a believer in Jesus Christ, as you mature as a Christian, the, the further you get in your faith, the more you realize just how dependent and desperate you were. But nonetheless, biblical saving faith starts with a man or woman who's desperately in their damned condition and understands there is nothing they can do to set themselves free from the condemnation due them for their sins. They need a savior and they cry out, whether it's audibly, whether it's in quiet of the heart, but it's not a passive, casual thing. Jesus, I was kind of wondering, you know, would you be my savior? You may not think of yourself as a impassioned man or woman, boy or girl, and I understand there are different personalities among us, and God made those different personalities, but I'm telling you if your toes are over the pit of hell just on the cliff and you see that you are about to go in, I don't care who you are, how private or personal or are you only have one person who can help you and pull you back you are hollering out to them oh jesus save me and help me please we're all desperate in our condition and the biblical faith starts out with a cry of desperation and that's why biblical saving faith is a grateful faith Because it's a man or woman who didn't just have a change in their life. They didn't just go from, you know, we used to be like this. And, you know, things are better now with Jesus. No, they once were lost, but now they're found. They once were blind, but now they see. And so they're a man or woman who's been saved from their desperate condition. And so they're full of gratitude and they want to serve the one who saved them. Biblical faith starts with a cry of desperation. Fourthly, of a basic truth, this text emph- emphasizes our Savior has a heart of compassion. I've underscored this. And this is the main thing I would have you take away today. Our Savior has a heart of compassion. He's not indifferent, he's not stoic, he's not cold. He's not immovable in that sense. He was moved with compassion and he's moved with compassion by the sufferings and for the sufferings of his people. Which leads to two main applications in closing. Short text, short message. First application, cry out to him. Cry out to him. Take a lesson from two helpless, desperate blind men. Don't be too proud to learn from them. Their example is lifted up and set before us. The crowd dismissed them. The crowd looked down their noses at them. God and Christ looks at these two blind men and the Holy Spirit and actually records their faith in the biblical text for eternity cry out to him there's some of you here this morning you've still been going along your life whether young or old as though you've got this maybe you have a a relationship with christ but you've never cried out to him he's like an app in your life an add-on he won't be that You must come to the place where you recognize that you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you are headed for judgment. Not just those who perpetrate great evils like those that we heard in Texas, but all of us. Which one of us has loved God as we should and what one of us of any age has not intentionally hurt and wounded those around us? In our love of self, We are sinners and we are condemned in our sins and there's nothing we can do to commend ourselves to God and there's nothing we can do. There's no righteousness, no matter, it doesn't matter how nice you are, doesn't matter how polite you are, doesn't matter how faithful you are showing at work up on time. None of that does any good to save you from your sins. There's only one who can. And you need to get his attention and cry out to him. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, please have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. I'm lost. I need to be saved. Cry out to him today. Today. Don't be too proud to cry out to him. So often the devil comes along and one of the ways that he keeps men and women from being saved in church is there's men and women who think, well, if I confess, if I cry out to him, if I call out to Jesus, then others in the church will know that I wasn't really saved before. And Satan comes alongside and says, won't that be so humbling? How stupid. What a lie from the pit of hell. Do you know what would happen if if others thought that you were saved, but you, in humility, recognized, you know what? I've never really cried out to Jesus. I need to cry out to him. I need to call out to him. I need need to be saved. And you did that, and you trusted in Jesus Christ, and you cried out to him today, and then maybe you told some others in the church, you know what? What? I cried out to God and to Christ today. and I, I was faking before that I was saved, basically. I was fooling myself, I was fooling others, but... No, I, I cried out to him today to be saved. Do you know what everybody else is going to respond? <laughs> Praise God! <laughs> Wonderful. The devil's lying. We're not going to think, oh... You really were trying to be a hypocrite before. No, what are we going to do? Rejoice. So don't listen to the devil. Don't let him tell you that if you cry out to Jesus, it'll be too humbling. It is humbling, but it's just the truth. And we all start there. We all start there. There is not one man or woman, boy or girl here, who is not in the same condition of needing to cry out to Jesus. And You cry out to him to be saved and when you are saved and you trust in Jesus Christ and you are born again you don't stop crying out to him. In fact that is what biblical prayer is in essence oh God help me cry out to him. Secondly in closing by way of application dear saints and people of the king in this world full of discouraging news and evil tidings that that we cannot fathom. Be encouraged and comforted. This compassionate king, this compassionate king is our king. And he's coming soon. He's coming soon, and his kingdom is going to be established. And we're going to close by reading Isaiah 35, verses three through six. This is a prophecy in Isaiah of not only the king, but of the coming kingdom. Isaiah 35, verses three through six. This is a prophecy of the future kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and the kingdom to come, when Jesus will be king on the earth, and Jerusalem will be restored, and Israel and the church and the people of God will all be one under Christ it'll be a time of flourishing but there in Isaiah 35 God tells the prophet to say verse 3 encourage the exhausted strengthen the feeble say to those with anxious heart take courage fear not why Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The king is coming soon. And in his kingdom, there will be no blind. For he is our compassionate king. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You're amazing. Our hearts are moved by your heart that's moved with compassion. I do pray this morning for any who are here who have not called and cried out to you to be saved. That by your spirit you would grant humility. And that even right now, right now in this moment, that there would be a crying out to you to be saved. And I want to give a moment of silence just, just for any who are here who need to, in their heart, cry out to you to be saved. I pray, Lord, for those who right now, known only to you, are calling out to you, if there's anyone here, that you would bless that dear one, that you would comfort them with the truth that you have never turned away anyone who comes to you in sincerity, that you are a God of mercy, abounding in compassion, and that you will save those who come to you and not turn them away as they trust in Jesus and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. We pray that you would help us to live as people of hope as we know our compassionate king. And we thank you, O God, that your kingdom is coming. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.